Lock equilibrium, that's it. And we all went, mm, yeah, sure, that makes sense. At the age of 19 or 20, you don't have supposedly capacity to question that. Now, yesterday we've questioned that. I must admit, my father was paying for my college education, but he was a he was a simple man, he's a plumber, still alive. And he had a shop. And what do you do in a shop? Customers come in, they want something, but they have a budget. They have a budget, they have a price, they don't want to pay more than that. But they want, of course, a lot for that money. What my father used to do is have a package, this was the standard price, but he could, of course, change his inputs, what went into that package. If people were not prepared to pay the standard package price, he could say, fine, I'll meet you. And in the back of his mind, he was already changing his inputs with a slightly less quality, slightly less, little, you know, costs less, and he would adapt so he could meet that price. Which is, to demonstrate, the failure of a simplistic demand-supply graph. That is just black and white and one-dimensional. And even if you were a student, you could have questioned that. You could have questioned this because you just have to ask, what if I change the quality of whatever I'm selling? And the professor that would be teaching this is quality, quality, quality. We don't do that. We're not looking at it. We're just looking at quantity and price. And if you want a different product with a different quality, we draw a new, a new equilibrium um, model. This is not how shopkeepers work. I mean, they have to work much faster than that. That's why we saw. Yesterday, Menger had the insight of saying, well, fine. There is an ask price, there's a bid price, and you can change, you can do some arbitrage at the input level, and you can do arbitrage at the output level. Which makes a lot more sense, because looking at an equilibrium, kill the equilibrium model simply by asking a few questions. <coughs> one of them would be what about quality input and the other one would be what, what would be the case if I changed volumes. Oh, changing volumes. No, 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 no. I can't even remember if I'm writing that. I might just... <coughs> Actually, when I look at this kind of um, drawing gives me stomach ache. So I advise you not to. I advise you not to. I mean, I've been subjected to, uh, like other people, subjected to difficult mathematical equations. Difficult. At the time, they were difficult to solve, and um, they solve nothing. They solve nothing because 
it's just an equilibrium model. And real life is disequilibrium. One could have known if, if you look at reality, if you look at a shopkeeper, simple as that. Interest rates, and this is the subject of um, today's um, theory, well, merger of the um, theories of interest rates and of productivity of capital is very similar. It's, it, it doesn't start from an equilibrium <coughs> at all. Um, yesterday we've built that model up. Good morning. Yesterday we've started by seeing, well, certain groundwork, which I will quickly um, repeat maybe. Um, but in essence, We've looked at the Austrian school. Mises was the uh, well-known proponent, not the only one, <coughs> mind you. But lots, lots of other people who were Austrian school um, scholars. But Mises is the, one of the best known ones. And he came to the conclusion that in the formation of an interest rate, which Sandeep said yesterday, well, an interest rate is, is, a, is a rate on money expressed in gold. Although Mises was a student of Menger, he could have known about a disequilibrium like bid and ask, offer, and, and you know, with a, a basic spread. I suppose, I suppose, a guess that if he did that he had to rewrite 900 pages of his book do I need to speak louder yes please thank you even more okay so um, I think Mises had to if he if he had pursued Menger correctly and not only did pay lip service, then he had to rewrite his whole opus. Because um, if, if I looked at, at work of the Austrians and, and uh, Hayek, um, Rothbard, and as far as they use models, they use equilibrium models, supply and demand. Which, as I said, gave me a stomachache. And still do. And I advise you not to. I advise you to straight go straight to the source and look at, at uh, Menger. Now, Mises, um, I have to look at time, and Mises was of the opinion that there was only one interest rate, and that was the natural rate of interest in an evenly rotating economy. What is a natural rate of interest? Well, it's just what, you know, the cost of money and provided for with a bit of risk left, right, and center, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll get somewhere. But he was a student of Nut Wixel. Wixel, <coughs> that's where he got that message. It wasn't his, his idea either. He just rephrased um, the words of Nut Wixel and, and came up with a natural rate of interest. Mises was also a student of um, the 
other Austrian, Boom Baberk. He wasn't a student of Menge. Boom Baberk, I suggest, should take at least the same amount of space in your book cabinet than Mises. I know Mises has written volumes, um, at least give it certain, certainly the same time consideration. It was this man, Bohm Baerwerk, who approached interest rates from a different perspective. He had the dark brown suspicion, I would say, that there's no such thing as a natural interest rate, but there is something like capital that needs to be productive. And the two schools now were opposed. What we're doing, what we're going to do now is basically telling everyone they're both right. If I put this microphone closer? No? Oh, okay. That's fine. Um, there is some more seats in the front here, because otherwise I'll have no voice by the end of the day. <coughs> do, you, do, you, do you mind? Or, uh, it's okay. <coughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <coughs> to arrive at this model, we need to start with the marginal utility of gold and silver, which we have seen yesterday the marginal um, utility um, of gold and silver is, is a consequence of the work of Menge, Karl Menge. And he, his work is on, is on um, exposing in the fact of marginal utility, of, of any goods with marginal utility, and he came to the conclusion, not in those words, but that gold and silver were, were the result of a natural social coordination activity, which makes it an institution. It doesn't make it an invention. It, gold and silver became promoted to an institution. It had, along the way, probably something to do with governments, um, there was a positive role for them in maintaining the good standard, we have seen yesterday, but they missed up the chance. Gold and silver have marginal, or constant marginal utility. Now what does that mean? Just a quick word on that. We know that um, all the gold and the silver mined in the last few thousand years forms stockpiles, <coughs> above ground stockpiles. You may say, well fine, so do diamonds and so do um, platinum. Platinum is a, is a precious metal, why isn't platinum money then? Well, platinum has great utilities in, in, in other applications such as catalytic converters. For the engineers uh, in the room, um, you would know what I'm talking about. Which means that we consume platinum. We 
it goes, we can recycle probably. But it, it's consumed, and besides that, there's no stockpiles of 80 years above ground that we can know of. You can go to um, Antwerp and try to find out how many years of um, stockpiles of diamonds we have. It's actually a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if the beers would ever divulge. Um, anyway, we consume diamonds. They have applications. And not only on the finger of, 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 of the ring or um, as, as in jewelry. So gold is actually utterly useless. <coughs> Even as dentistry material, there's better material to use in your tooth fillings. So gold is so useless that it stays above ground and yet we do not discard it, we do not throw it away. Very strange, isn't it? Well, it's not so strange, it's that's what makes it money. It is so useless that it's money. Of course it can be used in jewelry, which I think is a marginal application. If you look at the example that, uh, or the history of uh, money that, that Bernadette has yesterday described, all sorts of things were used as money. Shells, cowrie shells, uh, cattle, um, you name it, anything that had exchange value. Sandeep touched on that. It has exchange value, it has certain qualities, and then it has the best possible uh, it is the best suitable commodity to exchange because it has those qualities that are required to be money. Imagine that you end up with ship loads of diamonds. They exist, by the way. But imagine, imagine that. What, what, what is, I mean, the ladies amongst us, um, a truckload of diamonds, I'm sure you will accept. Would you accept a second, and a third, and then a shipload, and then another three shiploads of diamonds? Well, the first diamond that you lose, you would say, ah, damn, you know, I'll get another one. And the second one you lose, ah, I have another one. In the end, the marginal utility of the, the nth diamond, I mean, you have so much, you drown in diamonds. You couldn't care less. Is that so with money in the form of gold? <coughs> well, gold is the ultimate exchange medium. You would accept it on the same terms as the first one. And your last acceptance is the same as on the same terms as the, as the first one. There's no way we will ever see shiploads of gold in, in our cellars. Maybe, we wish. Um, but it's not going to happen. Therefore, it has, it has constant utility um, throughout, and, and, and not only here, throughout the rest of the world, which is what makes it the least subjective uh, value giver. 
we've seen yesterday also that all those most marketable goods and, and gold and silver are the most marketable goods are hoarded. That's why I'm saying, you know, shiploads. Why would you hoard them? Why would you keep them? Question is why? What's what would stop you from keeping it in your cellar? Of course, I'm taking a few things for granted, like a normal society with law and order. Huh? It's not war. So, what would be keeping you from, you know? Keeping all your money and being Scrooge. I'll here with that money, I'll keep it in my pockets. And the simple reason would be interest. Interest is what draws out gold out of hiding. Gold interest. Interest on gold needs to be in gold not in anything else. I mean, you, you, could, you could bargain to have interest in cattle, if that is what you like, but there we go again. Can you store 25 cattle in the middle of London? Don't answer that. Uh, some, some person will find a way, but it's easier to store not cattle, but another marketable commodity which is gold so interest is what uh, and interest on gold in gold uh, is what um, brings out circulation of gold and that's the natural state we've seen yesterday that um, There is a bid and ask, even for gold and silver, but because the because of marginal constant marginal utility, you would exchange one unit or the nth unit for the same terms, and that what that's what gives it constant marginal utility on the same terms. It doesn't drop. It's what makes gold hoardable and silver um, hoardable. It's what makes it exchange uh, the best exchange possible. It's so it is. It is the most saleable item. And being a commodity, um, this this uh, it's it's valid for all commodities, also for gold and silver. Except that um, the special case of, of gold and silver have this constant marginal utility. For potatoes, it drops very fast, and for other commodities that you cannot store indefinitely because they perish, you cannot store them, you cannot receive shiploads of them or unlimited quantities. And there is a symmetry then in the formation of. Um, price for commodities as it is for, for um, 
gold and silver. So there you have it, there is just one obstruction to the unlimited hoarding or unlimited saving of gold, which is interest. The problem of interest has been debated many times by many scholars all over the world, even in Vedic tests, I believe, texts, uh, in Salic law, um, which is very old, ancient continental law. Um, I'm, I'm not a specialist in South America, but I'm, I'm pretty sure even there, if, well, I, I will not explain, I will, I will not say anything about South America, I've, I'm not a specialist, but in the, in the world where um, gold was used as money, there was, everywhere there was interest. To the um, Arabs, it was called riba, and I think in Jewish, in Hebrew, it's called ribit. And everywhere in the world, even, and that, that theme was repeated by, unfortunately, by Aristotle, um, interest was something evil. You could not charge interest. That was... <coughs> so we have lived in times, in the beginning at least, of zero interest. Interest was not not tolerated. We, we all know the Catholic Church was against interest. And this is where I pick up on the formation of um, the beginning of, of um, the hexagonal model. And I'll start with the square model. <coughs> Because what we have, what we have is a um, wrong dichotomy. The wrong dichotomy is between is is, is the, the connotation of interest in, in the context of a borrower and somebody who needs money, a lender, uh, a borrower and a lender, somebody who lends out funds. And there is always this connotation of. I'm better than you because you need the money. You grovel. And you grovel for the money if you need it, especially if you're a student and 18 and you want an education. And dad is paying for your education, so you do what he asks, hopefully. Um, that is a context that we need to break out of. You can rephrase that context. The way or the example that I usually uh, present is this, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to prove that it is not just a question of uh, borrower and lender, because the king of a country, let's, let's just imagine, we are we're going back 500 years in history, the king of a country, he is wealthy, yet he borrows money. 
would say, well, he's wealthy. Why does he borrow money? It happened regularly that kings went to the Bank of Amsterdam to borrow money, to borrow funds, to wage war, which was probably, I suppose, the capitalist venture of the time. The kings were seen as capitalist venture, uh, venture capitalists, sorry. Because the chances were that he won <laughs> and he would bring more money. Now, um, jokes aside, uh, King is, of course, wealthy. And the um, question is, does he have, does he need <coughs> funds? Does he, does he actually need income? Well, he's, the king is short of income. And the Bank of Amsterdam, uh, they have income, cash flows in abundance. But they would like more wealth, capital of their own. That is an example that shows that um, the Bank of Amsterdam and the king were not, although they're not equals, but their bargaining position was a lot more equal than one would say between borrower and lender. That's why we, you know, we have to break out of this idea of, um, of, of bargaining positions that are subject, one is subject to another. And the Professor Fekete has rephrased that. Um, basically, we now say, let's, let's have another look at it. Because the bank and the king are exchanging wealth for income and income for wealth. And if you look at it that way, there's no usury. You don't have the problem of interest as usury. And this um, exchange, for income for wealth and wealth for income, is in fact a cornerstone, um, if you like, of irreducible credit. Now, I know the word credit in American, with American Austrians. Have you, how many of you have read American Austrians? Some work, right? When the word, when the concept of credit comes up, is it just my impression that Austrians just do not like credit? Am I alone? They, my feeling is they, they get a rash from credit. Eee. Everybody pays cash. Unless your name is God. No. That is my impression. They have a problem with credit. The new Austrian school looks at credit not as problematic, but as essential. And there are two sources of credit we've seen yesterday. One is the, the source of credit that Rudy has touched upon is, uh, in real bills is the uh, credit coming out of consumption. And what, we've discussed, what we're discussing now, there is another source of credit, which is um, savings, right? <laughs> two sources of credit, but they are. And none of them should give you a rash. Certainly not the ones in, in um, the, the source of credit from real bills, which is consumption. 
it's a cornerstone of, of, of um, interest is a cornerstone of efficiency and the, the exchange paradigm, wealth for income, income for wealth is essential. So forget borrower and lender. In a building up of, of a square model, I will start with four participants. Four participants, that's not four people, that's just four roles, four different hats you put on your head. It is just a role, please understand. We have, if you take the exchange paradigm, um, th there's basically four, four people. On, on the bottom, we have the mutant with a D, and the annuitant with a T. Those are the professor's words. Now, um, this is just, I suppose, a Latin abbreviation for annuitantus, past tense, and this is uh, annuitantus. Uh, I forgot all my Latin. But basically, don't put it in your head, but this is the young person, and this is the older person, and this is one of those dimensions that we cannot escape, which is time. Now, yesterday we said the problem of...